Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, September the 19th, 2022, and it doesn't matter what day of the week it is or what year it is, one of the guarantees I think we can give is that Kanye West will be in the headlines. Um, stories about his breakups of romantic relationships. This one with uh, Julia Fox. Um, he's always he's ubiquitous in media. Gap, Adidas, Kim Kardashian and wellness. He's been on a very popular podcast. Uh, I'm quoting a headline. We look away for five seconds and Kanye West has started his own school, which is quite an achievement. He's joined TikTok, of course, and he's gone viral. And ironically enough, even though he's launched his own school, he has admitted today or yesterday that he's never read a book. So he's starting a school without being much of a literary sort of fellow. Um, he is, of course, deeply controversial, particularly because of his support for Donald Trump. Many people are very ambivalent about Kanye. They acknowledge he was right in some ways, and yet they also, I think, distrust him. He's a remarkable cultural figure, whatever one thinks about him. Um, and interestingly enough, we're talking about him, or at least in part about him today. There's a headline uh, in a New York Times book review from three days ago, was Kanye right? Um, and it is a review of a book, a new book by my guest today, Brandy Collins Dexter, Black Skinhead, wonderful title, best title I've come across for years, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. Brandy uh, is joining us from Baltimore, Maryland. Brandy, congratulations, at least on the title. You got a New York Times review, which is quite <laughs> an achievement. How, how come you wrote a book, at least in part, about Kanye West when he acknowledges that he's never read a book? Yeah, you know, I think it's funny that he even says that. I mean, I think maybe I doubt that, but his mom is a academic professor and she wrote curriculum for the Chicago public school system. So it's a little bit funny to hear him saying he's never read a book. But I think one of the reasons why I was interested in Kanye as a figure is one as a Chicagoan that grew up a, a fan of, of Kanye's music and you know some of his political stance. And, and like many folks saw him felt like I saw him shifting as he became more of a Black MAGA supporter, but also um, because I, I, I think some of the things that he speaks to in um, his words, a certain amount of disillusionment, frustration with political systems. Um, I was really curious whether or not he was an outlier, whether um, he was just one person saying this or whether this was a reflection of younger voters, of Black voters. And so that question of like, what's going on with Kanye and is he alone is really what started me down the rabbit hole of writing this book. Um, the book is not entitled Kanye West and actually the title or the subtitle doesn't refer to him. Do you think it was fair that uh, the New York Times review, which is a big deal, a lot of people read the, 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 the Times book reviews. Do you think it was fair that the book review was essentially about Kanye West? I mean, were you trying to write a book about Kanye West, or is he more of a symbol of, uh, shall we say, uh, the, the idea of a black skinhead? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I he's definitely in the book. I think he's a symbol or even a ghost to a certain extent. Like he's he's in the background. He comes in as a as a character in a book that's full of many characters. Um, but the book is not solely about Kanye West, nor is it trying to psychoanalyze him, his personal life. Um, I, I definitely had a hard time as I was writing the book with all of the stuff coming out and people sending me every little thing that he did. But I think, um, you know, whether fair or not fair, I think it's important for folks to know that Kanye is not uh, the sole focus of the book by any stretch of the imagination. It's so much broader than that. And it's looking at a swath of black voters. And I interviewed many between the ages of 18 and 108. Uh, so there's a lot of different viewpoints encompassed in there, not just uh, Kanye. The subtitle of the book is Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. It's a book about African-Americans. You, you speak about our political future. Um, is it mostly the essays, are they tied together by this serious reevaluation of whether or not uh, African-Americans should somehow automatically vote for the Democratic Party? And that's where Kanye rears his head. Yeah, I think that's part of it, a, a huge part of it. It's looking at the, the uneasy alliance between Black voters and the Democratic Party. It's looking at uh, what has led Black voters in, in America to consistently vote for the Democratic Party in such overwhelming numbers. And where do we see um, tensions around that? But also, I think broadly, for me, it's this book about um, what it means to exist in a modern society and find an established space and place when we've lost so many um, public spaces and places, um, whether that's media, um, whether that's businesses, whether that's all those spaces in which um, not just Black people, but us, you know, as a society build community as we lose those spaces and, and we're more and more online, um, what's lost in that and, and what are some of the lessons we can learn as we look at some of the things that's happening with Black people right now in the U.S.? I think one of the things as an outsider I would generalize about Americans is they're rather uncomfortable disagreeing with one another. I, I, <laughs> uh, last week I was in Los Angeles for a premiere of a new movie about Carol Anderson, who I, I'm sure you're familiar with her work. She's an African-American historian based at mm -hmm. Emory, very influential writer, wonderful woman. She's a friend of mine. And one of the things in the film was uh, showing her and her brother um, and afterwards, I talked to her about her brother. I said, I didn't realize you had a brother. And she mentioned that uh, he was a Trump supporter. Mm. And then I asked the people who made the film, why didn't you bring that out in the film? Why didn't you show that there are fissures within the African-American community between someone like Carol Anderson, of course, who's a, a major voice within the Democratic Party, and guys like her brother, who was a senior figure within the FBI, his ex-military, and one can probably understand in some ways what made him a Trump supporter. Do you think, uh, I apologize for the rather long-winded question, Brandy, but do you think that there's something uniquely, shall we say, black about the unwillingness to, uh, to acknowledge ideological divisions, or is that really just an American thing? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I think so what's funny about this and, and part of the writing about this is if you go to any holiday at my house, you're going to have a lot of people with a lot of different opinions. We've always had Republicans in our family. In fact, I have a relative who was at January 6th and is a you know, QAnon supporter. 
And we've talked about those things with, you know, at the kitchen table, you know, in some more enclosed spaces. But I think there's this idea um, that we have to present a more united front because of some of the ways in which uh, we may be judged or divided as, as a broader community. And so I think we see in Black media, we see in more enclosed spaces that more diversity of thought. But also I would say when you look at uh, mainstream media outlets, I think they're very committed to a story of who black voters are, you know, this idea of us as capital D Democrats. And even when there's things that kind of chip away at that, uh, I, I think in a lot of ways there's there's something of a resistance. And so that, that's a little bit what I'm looking at too, the kind of failures of media to tell a complete black American story. Where do you position yourself? Do you see yourself as a critic from the left or the right or just from nowhere? You're quite prominent in your own way. You're visiting, I'm not sure if you still are, you're a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School for the Sharon Science Center on Media. Um, you're also involved with the American Economic Liberties Project. Do you see yourself as a critic from the left or the right or are those terms meaning, meaningless for black Americans in the 21st century? Yeah, so I'm associate research director at um, the Tech and Social Change Project at Harvard Shorenstein, so still there. Um, I'm definitely, I'm upfront throughout the book. I'm approaching this as somebody that identifies more left. And I think this idea that you could even be neutral uh, I think it's fraught on a lot of different levels. We're all made up of various data points and you know um, parts of our identity that influence how we see things, how we understand things. And if we try to pretend that we don't, then I think that's where we fail to see our own shortcomings. So in the book, you're really seeing me put myself forward. This is who I am. This is what I believe. And then going on this journey on all of the different ways in which I'm constantly challenged by that and evolving and still evolving in ways, you know, after the writing of the book. The New York Times review um, challenged some of the ideas in the book. I mean, it liked the book, uh, but it suggested that it, for those black voters on the left who were more interested in socialism than the older generation, why aren't they black skinheads? Why aren't they better example of being black skinheads, troublemakers, uh, iconoclasts than Kanye West with his support for Donald Trump. So what's funny about that is that they are in the book. I say up front, I consider myself a black skinhead. This is my journey. I introduce people um, throughout the book, uh, a woman that's a black socialist who was organizing a third party write-in um, uh, candidacy around Nina Turner going into the 2020 election and is very clear about, um, you know, her interest in third parties or, you know, at least reforming the Democratic Party. I speak with, um, you know, a sex worker that's definitely like organizing from the left and, and trying to establish, you know, human rights for sex workers on and offline. Um, I talk to like a number of different folks. And, and part of what I'm saying is that we all are, you know, fail to have our stories told and our, our full humanity and the diversity of our ideology. And so um, I, I think maybe that uh, the author of that review, maybe the, the two chapters in which I spoke about uh, Black Republicans resonated with him, but that was like two out of 15 chapters. And throughout many of the chapters, I talk about other folks. 
you've done a lot of thinking and reading on the skinhead movement, which of course began in in the UK in the 1960s. I remember when mm -hmm. I was growing up, we would tear every time we saw a skinhead, we'd walk over the other side of the road. But of course, skinheads are uh, very much involved in music, informative in in the history of punk. You connect, or my my understanding is that you connect punk and skinheads and hip hop. Are they all part of the same? resistance, the same challenge to the musical or cultural or political establishment in your mind? Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the places that this starts is I, I lived in London for a couple of years. Um, and right as I was leaving, this was around between 2005 and 2007, there was this movie I remember seeing in the theater called This Is England, which yeah. um, talked about the, the rise of, of skinheads in the UK. And I think for me, that was the first time that I was even aware that skinheads or something other than like neo-Nazis and white nationalists. And, um, you know, working with my researcher, Yohan Grant, who's a, a Jamaican artist, uh, her family uh, is, is in the UK and was part of the skinhead movement and was really fascinated by the idea of this as this first kind of like multicultural uh, subculture coming up with the combination of the Windrush generation um, in Brixton, working class, um, white folks and and how through the music and through aesthetic, um, which was practical in a lot of ways, having to wear combat boots to work, having to wear their hair a certain way, they found a certain amount of solidarity in this working class struggle and the ways in which as we continue to see economic decay, um, those communities became more and more fractured and you see the emergence of white nationalists trying to establish a national identity as something um, that looks one way and that's exclusive of these newer communities that came in post-World War II. And so taking that concept and this idea of what does it mean to be a nationalist um, in, in a multi multicultural uh, or multiracial or multi-ethnic uh, country, what does it mean to define what it is to be an American? What does it mean to define and understand what you feel like you're owed, particularly when you come from the working class? Like playing around with that as an as an idea was something I was really drawn to with this book. And of course, Black Skinhead is also a Kanye West um, song. So there's a parallel there as well. What about the idea, listening to your argument, some people might conclude that the Proud Boys could also be considered equivalent to the skinheads of the 1960s. They're outrageous. They're offensive. Mm. Um, is it conceivable that there might be a, an unholy alliance, an, an unholy marriage between uh, angry white young men, members of the Proud Boys and those kinds of groups and black skinhead? I think that's part of what we're seeing, especially on the right. Um, you're seeing a lot of working class people drawn to populism that, that feel like um, in some ways the Democratic Party speaks more to um, you know, corporate issues or needs or, or, you know, people with money than they do with um, working class folks. And I think there's a lot of challenges. We can, we can unpack the complexity of that. I don't think it's like totally fair, but I do, I do think that one thing that we're seeing is people are frustrated with government. They're frustrated with the status quo. We saw Trump as this kind of light, lightning rod figure, almost a third party unto himself because he was upending so much about what we understand about everyday politics. And you saw a lot of people drawn to that swagger and cut to the 2020 election, even though 
black voters um, were, you know, clearly part of Biden's victory. Trump actually gained with every group except white males. And we're, and we're seeing the long tail of that, even as we look at the midterms this year, where um, I believe 81 uh, black Republicans have run for office over the course of the year, some more serious candidates than others. But I think even if five or six of them win, it'll be the largest number of Republicans in Congress, black Republicans that we've seen in Congress since I think close to the reconstruction era. So yeah, I think that wave is definitely happening. And I think it's built around a lot of um, anger from, you know, sort of economic conditions that some people are facing on a daily basis. I understand part of your argument. I mean, there's no doubt that there's a horrible complacency amongst Democrats, especially the Democratic establishment, the Hillary Clinton community, communities of the world, um, who have been saying the same thing for 40 years. Um, but what I don't understand is what the Republicans would actually do for African-Americans. Are you suggesting that uh, that black skinheads would, would want less government? And is that the fix to the... Uh, is that the fix to racism and um, and uh, inequality in America today? Yeah, I'm not. I'm definitely, to be clear, not suggesting that for myself and my personal politic. I think, you know, again, when I talk about the black skinhead, I'm talking about people that veer from this idea of what you think about when you think about black people as democratic voters. So that's happening to the left and the right. And so there's, you know, black Republicans um, that come from different strands of conservatism that are aligning around this idea that we haven't seen government show, show up for us in a tangible way. A lot of them that I spoke with took issue particularly with local aldermen or, or walking through their communities and, um, you know, some of the places like the Pullman community in Chicago, um, a woman I spoke to from there uh, talked about the economic decline that she had seen over decades and feeling like their aldermen weren't there. You know, I would argue I have questions about, you know, Republican governors that have divested from some of those communities. But, you know, I think for those folks, there's this idea of like, we don't want big government. We want to build our own Black utopias. We want to have control over Black capital. And that's how we save ourselves. And then you have, you know, I think people on the left and, and 70%, I think, of, of Black voters under 45 are interested in um, third party candidates. Black, uh, younger Black voters tend to be more socialist. They're um, on the other end, they're, they're looking for, you know, government to take more responsibility over everyday life. And so that's, that's kind of what I'm looking at in the span of, of the Black skinhead, that, that business as usual is not working for people at scale on the ground. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's working for anyone, let alone no. not just, just <laughs> it's, you know. men, women, everybody. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems we, we've done a number of shows, um, Brandy, on the division in the world between, shall we say, people living on the coast, people who live in a globalized world, people who travel extensively, and the more settled communities in America. Do you think that uh, for one reason or other, African-Americans are much more, and, and, and that division has been described as somewheres versus everywheres. Do you think that African-Americans are naturally, at least in their American experience, more like somewheres than everywheres, which would make them more comfortable within perhaps the Republican Party, like uh, Hispanic Americans, too, who are beginning to rethink their political loyalties? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... 
so there's a couple of things there. So I wrote this book and I specifically locked in on the Black experience for a couple of reasons. One, that's my community. Um, and also because I think because of the large numbers in which we've voted, um, we've been a voting block for the Democratic Party. It's one of the places where you can most clearly see um, what are some of the ways in which uh, party alliances are fraying in a way that's um, you know maybe less obvious with other communities. But I think that, as you said, I think we're all disillusioned. We're all you know um, skinheads in one way or another. Or at least many of us are for whom systems don't feel like they're working. But I think as far as Black people, um, one of the things that's been really core to Black um, voting has been Black organizing. And a lot of Black organizing historically has come through Black-owned papers, have come through um, Black-owned businesses, through religious institutions. And what we've seen, uh, you know, over time through deregulation, but certainly starting in 2008, 60% of Black wealth is lost. And a lot of that was a land, a lot of that was churches and businesses. And we saw more loss during COVID. And so those physical spaces in which people could build um, an alliance or a pact and negotiate with uh, democratic leaders, a lot of those different spaces are gone. And so in absence of that and feeling like um, those things were lost, you know, a lot under the watch of, of democratic leadership, some people for better or worse have come to the conclusion that we want to try to create, we want to go back to like, the kind of mythical Tulsa in the Black American imagination, this idea of having Black Wall Streets and Black wealth that's concentrated and free from, um, you know, a government that hasn't always stood up for, for Black people or Black economic rights. So uh, a, a cultural and political and economic isolationism. Yeah. Communities within communities. And, yeah. and are you saying that's a good or a bad thing or a logical thing? You're open to the idea of it. I think it's not a... I think in a lot of ways, it's not a realistic thing. Um, you know, even when we look back at these ideas of these like Black Wall Streets, they were destroyed. Um, a, a lot of Black land was lost in the early 20th century. So I, I don't know that it's a fully um, realistic thing that hyper-capitalism will save Black people. I mean, you know, Black identity in a lot of ways was built on capital and economic caste and all of these things. But what I do think is important for all of us who have various identities, um, speak different languages, have different cultures, is that I think we all need to have our own independently owned and controlled media spaces and public spheres. I think what does not serve us are corporate monopolies, are you know, um, one or two institutions or corporations ruling over everything. I think more decentralized businesses and, and us being more connected to local news and local space I think that serves all of us at scale. And so that's also part of what I'm getting at through the book. One of the most controversial aspects uh, of Kanye West, and this was discussed in the, in the New York Times review, was his uh, rather different way of thinking about black history and slavery. Do you think that's something that should be up for debate too, this notion of slavery and victimhood and agency? <laughs> um. Hmm. I, I don't think that should be up for debate. In fact, I, I think it's quite problematic that when you pull people, um, a lot of people in America at an increasingly alarmingly alarming rate 
don't know how long slavery lasted, um, don't understand uh, the racialized aspects that race as a census category was in fact created to divide the working class um, and to create this kind of like racialized um, group that was you know, never meant to be anything but slaves. Uh, I think it's important that we understand our history and that we're clear that there was violence, um, that there are institutions that still carry out and benefit from the, that violence, um, you know, still financial institutions or policing that, that, are, that have been built on slave money. So I don't, I don't necessarily think those things are up for issue, but I think one of the, one of the problems that I think we experience in a modern society, and this isn't me being like the good old days, but I think in general, a lot of nuance is lost and a lot of conversations that maybe would happen in closed spaces and would be interpreted one way is now happening out in the open and being interpreted in all sorts of ways. So one of the things I say with Kanye saying that slavery was a choice, you know, one of the things that he says online and to Charlemagne, the God a radio host after that is, is that in a lot of ways that he understands, you know, the violence of slavery. But one of the things that he's talking about are um, certain aspects of mental enslavement and terrorism. And I think understanding the fuller scope of slavery and, and what all that entailed from an emotional, spiritual, and physical standpoint is something that I think we could be more expansive in our understanding of. One of the debates within the African-American community, I've noticed at least in terms of guests on my show, is the debate about how much has actually changed since slavery. Uh, we had Randall Kennedy on the show, the Harvard law professor, who believes there has been significant change. Other, uh, other people, other guests, uh, comes to mind, Maisha Cherry, for example, written a book on rage, didn't seem to think much has changed. What's your position in terms of thinking about, if you like, the narrative? I know it's a big question and yeah. it requires a simple answer, but making sense of the narrative of African-American history since abolition? I think it's a mixed bag. I think, you know, socially in terms of more representation in certain spaces and media spaces and in boardrooms and in other places, we have seen some forward progress. I think in a lot of ways, um, things have not necessarily changed. I, I, I believe W.E.B. Du Bois, when he was looking at land ownership in the country, um, in the U.S. in the early part of the 20th century, and you look at black, black land ownership now, Black people actually own less land now than we did in the early 20th century. I think there's a lot of ways in which through integration, um, and not just like integration, but like this idea that we don't have a need for Black, for certain Black public spheres, because we are integrated into the community. I think there's a lot of things that have been lost, uh, you know, from that. I think, you know, the loss of Black papers, um, the loss of Black businesses, as I've said before, I think that has really hurt us. And I think, um, you know, as it's hurt a number of communities that have lost like local businesses and, and media infrastructure. And I think we're really starting to see the fallout from that as we look at some of the divisions in the black vote. So I, I think not enough has changed for where we should be. And, and one of the important lessons um, that I say in the book is that, you know, uh, tokenized black representation without material gain at scale is not the change that we need. Um, and so it's, it's, it's fine to have black faces in high places. I, I think that can be great at 
in fact, but when that becomes a barrier that when that tells us that equity has been achieved, when so many of us have not seen that promised land, I think that's that's when we need to examine what's working and what's not. We did a show on the end of bias with Jessica Nordahl, who has a book out, The End of Bias, The Beginning, The Science and Practice of Overcoming Unconscious Bias. Do you think we'll know in America when we've reached a moment when bias has ended, when um, black people and white people are economically equal? Is that the proof in the pudding? Or will that be the proof in the pudding? You know, I don't know. I think that's an interesting question. Let me put it this way. What I think is that what we saw with the civil rights movement in the, in the mid part of the 20th century is that these ideas of dealing with bias and systemic racism were things that were kind of kicked over to HR departments or to the system of this idea that you can buy like sort of, you know, you can get rid of your unconscious bias. If you just attend this like two hour training um, and all of a sudden you'll, you'll go out of it and, and you'll know all the things that are wrong and you can be a better person and you can be an anti-racist and like all of these things. And, um, you know, I, I think what we're finding or, or what we know is that building a society in which all of us can feel like we're a part of it in equitable ways takes a lot more than that. It takes a lot of living together, a lot of working together, a lot of generations, a lot of understanding each of our histories not erasing them. And, um, you know, I think until we get away from this idea that if we just do these kind of like surface things, we'll be dealing with the issue. And until we really deepen, you know, our analysis and what we're willing to do to, you know, where necessary, um, dismantle or at least challenge certain institutions or structures, I don't necessarily see us um, getting to that place where, everyone, uh, you know, feels equal. And certainly I think that becomes even harder in a, in a capitalist system. Final question, Brandy. Uh, the year 2045 is symbolic for many Americans. It's the year when apparently, according to demographers, uh, white America will be in a minority. And um, we're still almost 25 years away from 2045. Uh, so finally, just sort of a, a futurist ending to this. What will America look like, do you think, in 2045? I mean, we know mm. what it will look like, but what will it be like in 2045 when uh, black and brown-skinned people are in the majority in this country? Yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting question. I think for one, you know, I'm not sure that fully accounts for how white has configured itself over time because it is this social construct that comes from this census categorization that was developed in the US. But there were times where Irish people weren't considered white, Italian people weren't considered white, you know, um, Latino people weren't considered, you know, white or white identity, even if they were white identified. And we've seen that change over time. So I think the definition of who's white and who identifies as white is this evolving thing that, uh, you know, may shift or at least challenge some of those numbers. But generally, I think what I see is, unless we have some interventions, more extreme inequality, more extreme caste systems, um, we're already in, you know, in a gilded age. And I think it will continue to get worse unless we really um, start renegotiating with political figures in our society. 
In other words, Brandy, there are going to be a lot more black skinheads in 2045. So that's there's going to be a lot of skinheads. Yeah. skinheads <laughs> black, white, brown, doesn't matter yep, what yep. they are. A lot more skinheads, symbolically or otherwise. Uh, your new book, congratulations, uh, by Brandy Claire's Collins Dexter collection of essays, Black Skinhead Reflections on Blackness and Our political future it's out right now and an important new book an important new voice uh not so new brandy um what else should people be reading what else are you reading these days what other books yeah so i have to give a plug to um a, another book that's coming out on the same day uh on on tuesday the 20th and that's meme wars by uh joan donovan um, Brian Friedberg and Emily Dreyfus, and that looks a lot at um, online spaces and what we've seen over the last twenty years, and you know how memes and other modes of communication have shifted how we relate to each other. Um, I got a chance to read that advanced copy of that book, and I, I think it's excellent, and I recommend it. And the other one I would say is DeForest Brown Jr. Assembling a Black Counterculture. Um, that was one of the books that was really formative to the writing of my book. Um, and it started with me learning that techno uh, was once black and, and created in Detroit. And uh, he, he really looks at techno, looking at the role of like shifting societies, you know, delves into some Alvin Poplar and um, some, some folks that I look up to um, or that I, I read a lot, futurists that I look to. So I would say those two books um, would be my recommendations.